Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Singularity Podcast. Singularity Podcast is a feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. Today, my guest at the show is John Horgan. John Horgan is a science journalist and director of the Center for Science Writings at the Stevens Institute of Technology at Hoboken, New Jersey. A former senior writer at Scientific American, he has also written for the New York Times, Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and many other publications around the world. At present, John writes, uh, John writes for the Crosscheck blog for Scientific American, does video chats for bloggingheads.tv, and writes a column for BBC Knowledge. I have to mention also that many of John's publications have received international coverage, including front-page reviews and news articles. His first book, The End of Science, Facing the Limits of Science in the Twilight of the Scientific Age, was a bestseller translated into 13 languages. His follow-up, The Undiscovered Mind, How the Human Brain Defies Replication, Medication and Explanation, was a finalist for the 2000 British Mind Book of the Year, and has been translated into eight languages. John is probably the best-known critic of both Ray, Ray Kurzweil and the technological singularity, and it is for this reason that I wanted to invite him here at Singularity Weblog so that he can present his views on our topic. So without further ado, let me welcome John Horgan at Singularity Podcast. Welcome, hey, John. Nice Thank you. Nice to be here. I, I, um, I'm certainly a critic of the singularity. I... I have never heard before that I was the best-known critic, uh, but uh, I guess that's a compliment, so thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, and again, it is our privilege to have you here. Um, we would like to include the whole, the full spectrum of the debate, a healthy debate on the singularity, of course, includes both the optimists and the pessimists, and let our viewers make their own mind for themselves. So thank you for uh, taking time to do this with us. My pleasure. Excellent. So let me start um, with the big picture and ask you to share a little bit about your background, maybe, so that people familiarize yourself, uh, themselves with you, and especially how you got interested in um, examining and analyzing the progress of science in general. Well, I'm an English major. Um, for starters, uh, but I've always been interested in science. I, um, when I was a kid, half the time I wanted to be a writer, half the time I wanted to be a scientist, and then I realized eventually I could be a science writer and um, satisfy uh, both these interests. And actually, one of the reasons I wanted to become a science journalist was because of some of the singularity-like prophecies that were being made in the early 80s when I was <laughs> at uh, Columbia. I was an undergraduate at Columbia and then went to uh, the School of Journalism there in the early 80s. I graduated in uh, 1983. And just as an example, I took a course from a writer named Pamela McCordick, who wrote a very influential book called Machines Who Think. I think it came out in 82 or so. Mm -hmm. And um, and the book was about how computers were going to take over the world. It was about some of the predictions coming out of Japan and the United States primarily about these tremendous advances in artificial intelligence. And McCordick had uh, interviewed 
uh, Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy and Hans Moravec and a lot of the uh, the leaders of artificial intelligence, and they're basically saying that computers are just about to race past us in intelligence, and they were going to be these amazing transformations of humanity and uh, and possibly computers, robots, whatever, were going to leave us in their cognitive dust and create a whole new super intelligent species. I thought that was really far out. Um, and that was one of the uh, inspirations for me in becoming a science writer. That sounded so exciting that I wanted to uh, cover it. So that's that's amazingly interesting. You started with uh, a whole lot of enthusiasm and optimism about the singularity as a possibility, and then eventually, in time, you turned into a critic. Yeah, you know, I should mention that uh, this is maybe uh, giving away a little bit too much about my background, but all another principal factor was that I had a, um, a drug drug trip. So I'm I'm sort of an old um, an old hippie. And grew up in the 60s, and I dabbled in psychedelics. And I had a trip in, um, I think it was 1981. I've written about this. And, in fact, I think I, I mentioned it at the Singularity Summit a couple of years ago. Yeah, I was um, watching that video. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the trip, I felt like I became this cosmic computer at the end of time, a, a computer that uh, filled out the whole universe and uh, could basically calculate or imagine any reality and uh, that as well as what I was reading uh, about artificial intelligence and hearing from my teacher Pamela McCordick um, also led me to have uh, have a real fascination with these sorts of possibilities and uh, and my first uh, job in journalism was for an engineering magazine IEEE Spectrum which was covering artificial intelligence. And it was covering some of the, the crazy research that was being supported by uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, they were trying to uh, create autonomous robots that could be soldiers and go out and, and shoot people. And so no, no real humans would get killed. Well, the, they would kill humans, but uh, <laughs> good guys uh, could just stay at home in their offices. And uh, so it was a combination of this actual vision that I had uh, and science fiction um, and what I was reading uh, that made it seem as though all this was actually going to happen that uh, that pulled me into this field. So would you say that your original motivation that pulled you into the field was uh, spiritual or scientific or general curiosity or what, what was the, the main motive you would say? I'd say it was all of the above. Uh, I, I think uh, people who are familiar um, with my writings, uh, starting with my first book, The End of Science, I can see that um, that my interest in science has a kind of, I guess, spiritual dimension to it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, so I was a lapsed Catholic and then became a not quite a, an atheist, but an agnostic. And I, I saw science as possibly uh, providing a kind of spiritual fulfillment that traditional religions uh, couldn't. So that definitely was, um, was part of my interest in all these things too. But also it was, there was this hardcore materialist in me, the journalist in me that just thought these were some of the most exciting things happening on the planet. Uh, so it was all a mix of these different motivations. 
That's that's incredibly interesting, and I have so many questions I want to ask. How you started as a complete optimist and enthusiast, and ended up writing a book such as The End of Science, for example. But before that, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into your uh, fundamental or spiritual self. Now, you've already briefly touched that you started off as a Catholic. Can you tell us a little bit more about your religious affiliations, past or present, and where you're at in terms of religious, uh, in religious terms at the moment, but how you started it and where, where you are at right now? Well, I grew up in kind of a soft Catholic family. Uh, my dad would drag us to church now and then, but um, uh, he didn't take it all that seriously. I guess I was a pretty good Catholic boy until I was maybe 12 or so, and then I started thinking about some of the things that we were uh, learning in catechism, and they just seemed um, silly to me, and uh, I was starting to read a lot. As I said, when I became a teenager, I kind of got involved in um, in some of these uh, alternative forms of spiritual seeking that emerged in the 60s. Uh, I got interested in Eastern mysticism. I got interested in psychedelic drugs. I was doing those sorts of things at the same time as I was reading a lot of uh, Aldous Huxley, for example. He was a big influence on my, uh, on my thinking. And I guess the way this relates to science is um, I was uh, really intrigued by the idea of there being out there somewhere a kind of revelation where you could really know what was going on in this world, uh, a kind of enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, a really higher consciousness. Nirvana. Nirvana that could be achieved by meditation or by psychedelic drugs or maybe intellectually and by science. By science. So, uh, in the uh, in the early 1980s, you probably remember also Stephen Hawking and some other people were starting to talk about the, the possibility of a final theory of physics that would also represent the culmination of our. Uh, quest to know what the hell is going on here, where did the universe come from, what's the purpose of existence, and all those sorts of things. A complete theory of everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was part of the motivation. I, I should say another big... So what happened my- there? You started off as a soft Catholic, uh, then you moved on to, like, as you mentioned, being a hippie, embracing the, the time of the 60s, etc., uh, trying some psychedelic drugs, then how did your religious uh, awareness or embracing of religious ideas evolve from there? Did you, what was the next step? Did well, you abandon I, Catholicism completely? Did you become agnostic or a complete atheist? Did you become a Buddhist because you mentioned Eastern mysticism? I'm, I'm fascinated by, by all forms of religion. I, I'm not religious in any conventional way anymore. I, I call myself an agnostic because reality seems much too weird to be totally uh, a random, a, a total coincidence that, that, um, that has no purpose or, or uh, meaning. Just, there's too much of a narrative, too much drama to existence for me to completely be an atheist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, but I haven't found any theology that makes any sense to me. So I'm always out there looking for people's crazy ideas to find a, try to find something that makes sense. And I guess because I'm, I'm sort of an asshole, I, I, you know, I, I'm fascinated in ideas and then I, I find them and then I look into them and then I decide that they're really pretty dumb, just as dumb as Catholicism was. And then I go on to the next thing. 
but I should say that my skepticism is informed. What happened, what turned me from a, an optimist to a pessimist was that I became a science journalist and I learned what was actually going on in science. And I realized that um, the predictions about super intelligent machines and all that kind of stuff were just science fiction fantasies that were very poorly grounded in uh, reality. That really started happening in the late 1980s. And uh, I became equally pessimistic about the prospects for a final theory of physics that would explain where the universe uh, came from. So I'm an equal opportunity skeptic. So would you say that at least for a brief period of time when you originally started uh, uh, writing as a science journalist, you had this sort of proto-religious fascination with science as probably the substitute of your previous religious sort of searches or spiritual search. You replaced science, you put science at that pedestal for a time, then you kind of got disappointed from it, and then what? Well, you know, I should say, first of all, I had a whole chapter, a whole section at the end of my first book, The End of Science, basically on the singularity. Uh, so I interviewed people like Freeman Dyson, who yeah. is really one of the heroes. It's astonishing to me that he's not mentioned more often by people in the singularity movement. I also interviewed uh, Hans Moravec. I interviewed this, uh, this wacky physicist named Frank Tipler, who had the Omega Point Theory, where the, the universe collapses into a black hole that's actually a computer, and it's calcul calculating all possible realities at the same instant. And the way I started to think about those sorts of ideas was that they were wonderful thought experiments. I call this scientific theology mm -hmm. because they, you know, they were sort of quasi-scientific. You're using science to extrapolate into the far future, and uh, you imagine, for example, the whole universe becomes this all-powerful, all-knowing computer. Well, what then? The computronium. Right. What, what's it going to think about? Uh, what, what would this, what would this all-powerful computer want to do for the rest of eternity? And I found questions like that really fascinating uh, in a way that conventional theology wasn't because they had a, had this kind of scientific dimension to them. So I loved that shit. But um, that to me was – it was like theology – and uh, not something that I thought was actually imminent, was going to happen, and that people should start taking very seriously right now. It was just wonderful thought experiments and, and, and uh, places where the human imagination could run amok. Well, so uh, would you say that in that sense your criticism to, towards the singularity as a concept or as a possibility for our future is a spiritual one or a scientific one or a mixture of both? Because that's, that's an important distinction I think we have to make. Because so far it seems that at least your, primal, uh, your original motivation to get involved in it was spiritual mm -hmm. and then scientific too, but right. originally spiritual. Well, as far as people out there go, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who are either soft or hardcore singularity believers, and they seem to have lots of different motivations. Mm -hmm. And some of them, and as you know, you know, I, I've, I've written a lot about Ray Kurzweil's particular version of the singularity, yeah. but there are lots of other people who have their own 
versions. And I think people are looking for all sorts of different things. Some people see it as, as maybe uh, artificial intelligence creating new business opportunities. You know, they're kind of crass, uh, money-oriented versions like that. But I think for others, clearly, when people are talking about immortality, when they're talking about transcending their flesh and blood bodies and living in cyberspace, that sounds to me like a technological version of heaven. I know that this isn't uh, new to you, but I think it's just obvious that that's what it is. And, um, you know, I don't want to die either. I, I'm uh, susceptible to those, those kinds of um, intellectual yearnings. seductions. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I also like to think that I'm a pretty hard-headed guy who knows how to distinguish fantasy from reality. And uh, to, as I said, to the extent that some people think this stuff is about to happen soon, and when Ray Kurzweil is talking about people who are alive today, including himself, who are going to live forever, I, you know, I just feel it's my responsibility as a science journalist to, to point out how little grounding there is in those sorts of predictions. Okay, let's, let's take it one by one. I, I really want to hear what you... Uh, and it would be interesting to also put forward your uh, input on a bunch of, say, traditional arguments in favor of the singularity. So, speaking of immortality, one of the most common ones is the one about the doubling of uh, life expectancy during the last 100 years and the quadrupling of life expectancy, say, for the last 2,000 years. I mean, the argument goes that, say, during the time of the pyramids, the average life expectancy in Egypt was about 22. In ancient Athens, during the times of, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, it was arguably around 28, right? Mm -hmm. So in Europe, 1400 AD Europe was about 38, etc. Then in 1800, I think it was 42. Uh, at a time when Social Security was introduced in the United States, I think it was about 47 or 48 years of age. Today... I was just reading a, an article, um, well, not just, but a few months ago, actually, an article on the BBC claiming that babies born today in the first world, such as Britain, for example, are likely to live well over 95 years of age. Mm -hmm. Right. So the argument goes that clearly, scientifically, we have managed to prolong life four times by a factor of four in the last 2,000 years and by a factor of two in only the last 100 years. So since science is accelerating and uh, development in scientific discoveries are accelerating, so the argument claims, chances are that we're going to double life expectancy not in another 100 years but in another maybe 50 years or 40 years again. So from if we went from 48 to 95 in 100 years, then in 50 years we may go from 95 to 160 or something, right? Okay. So what's the problem with that kind of thinking? Isn't there enough history to back that argument up? Can I, let me just ask you, do you believe that yourself, Nick? Do you think, you, you look at that, um, that trend in life expectancy over the last um, couple of millennia, and really, almost all the progress has happened within the last 100, 200 years, because that's when public health measures started yeah. coming into effect and uh, sterilization of uh, milk and things like that and vaccines and so forth. Antibiotics. And, yeah. And so that's when you had the, the really tremendous 
increase in life expectancy really just you know since the end of the last uh, of the 19th uh, century and and the vast majority of that is is really drastic reductions in um, child mortality and infant mortality mm -hmm. uh, so if you got rid of child and infant mortality even going back to the Neolith neolithic period then if people live to be 15 or 20 they could sometimes expect to live uh, a reasonably um, healthy life. So that's kind of the, the sensible way, I think, to look at it. And you also see this throughout all of human history, a ceiling on life expectancy. So there are extraordinary people who live uh, to be more than 100 years old. I think the oldest person uh, who uh, has been recorded is Madame Calmont, this, uh, this old French lady who lived to be 130 or so. Yeah. But you don't see... You know, if if the ceiling was in principle something that could just be raised more and more, I think you'd have to see some of these extraordinary cases of people living to 150, 160. Uh, but there's nothing like that. And most of the the biologists uh, I know and the experts on senescence, they say that at this point it looks like there is a ceiling. So what's happening is that you're getting more and more people who are living to the uh, the theoretical um, optimal uh, lifespan, but not beyond that. And and the uh, the arguments that I beat to death when I'm talking about the uh, the singularity and when people talk about immortality is, um, give me a little more, give me something to to make me more optimistic. How about some advances in um, in treating cancer? How about some advances in uh, gene therapy? Gene therapy doesn't exist now, and it goes back more than 20 years now. I mean, I was at Scientific American in the late 80s when gene therapy was going to revolutionize medicine, and it never happened. It turns out to be extraordinarily difficult. Uh, you know, and Scientific American was also publishing one article after another on, um, on how cancer was uh, on the verge of, of, uh, of being cured. That never happened. Because human biology is much more complicated uh, than anybody realized. And well, so, may I jump in? So that's why the. May yeah, I jump ahead. in and see if I can provide some some input here? I mean, yeah. here's my own personal experience. Like for me, that that argument that that I made make make sense, mm -hmm. and and the reason for this is this. Let me give you an example. My father is a is a fairly young guy actually. He Unfortunately, in the last year, he had two heart attacks and two strokes. And uh, let me mention that he lives in Bulgaria. So as soon as he had the first two heart attacks, he had to get a bypass. Now, 20 years ago, I think, in most countries, or 30 years ago, in most countries, people who have heart attacks would probably die as soon as they get the heart attacks. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, in a place like Bulgaria, a bypass is a routine operation. So my, my father had two heart attacks and he recovered completely after them, right? So in, in, it is at least one case in which science, medical science in this case, has provided us with a chance to address a health-related issue or a, or a disease that kills people, one of the most common killers actually, right? Yes. Um, and provides them an extra life of probably 10, 20 or more years in some cases. Right. Uh, so here's one case in which we're not talking about, you know, infant mortality, but we're talking of 
actual measurable life extension technology, which a bypass is, right? Mm -hmm. Another one, my nephew was uh, born with uh, diabetes or uh, had a child, for, uh, child uh, type 2 diabetes, I think it's called, right? Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. in the 1930s, all those kids would probably die before the age of 10 or 7 or 8 or something like that. Right now, he's a young lad, probably 23 years old. He's at the uh, university football team. He's like 6'3", and he's the, the embodiment of health and strength, right? Another case in which I believe uh, the discovery of insulin, which was, by the way, done here at the University of Toronto, uh, saved a life and many millions of lives, and gives those people a chance of life that they never had. And I mean, that's why they gave the fastest ever Nobel Prize for medicine for the invention of insulin, because immediately, as soon as it was invented, it started producing immediate results of saving people lives, people's lives. Also, cancer, if we talk about cancer, I think there's many, many forms of cancer nowadays. I mean, my mother died from cancer when she was 38 and a half, unfortunately. But so that didn't work for her, uh, even though she did go through like even radiation therapy and chemotherapy and nothing helped in her case. But the reason for this was, again, because her treatment was done in Bulgaria. As I found out later on, if she had the chance to go to, say, France or Switzerland and be treated for the same type of cancer that she had, uh, the, the type of treatment that she had on her was not being in usage in those countries since the 1940s. So, of course, Bulgaria was about 40 or 50 years behind in terms of medical science. And most people with that kind of cancer survive nowadays, yes. right? So aren't those all clear cases in which science has made a difference and measurable effect on the life expectancy of people? Nick? I hope you realize I'm not denying that there's there's progress. We've already talked about things like um, like vaccines mm -hmm. and antibiotics and so forth. Uh, when my first child was born, my son McNeil, who's now a big strapping 17-year-old boy, uh, his mother could not deliver him vaginally, um, and so she had to have a, a cesarean, cesarean section. Yeah. They both probably would have died. Yeah. Uh, 150 years ago, yeah, um, or at least one of you know my my wife probably would have died. Um, so uh, I, I mean I've seen the the um, the impact of of medicine. Medicine has made tremendous strides in many areas. Obviously, um, I'm addressing this theoretical limit that the we're ceiling. talking about. Yeah, the ceiling, and it seems to me that's why it's important to bring up. Um, cancer and genetic therapy because mm -hmm. we're talking about senescence we're talking about some of these diseases yeah. of aging that become almost um universal when you reach a certain point and uh, a certain uh age and uh, that's what i'm looking for i'm looking for some really dramatic breakthrough there i'm sorry that's uh, that's okay that's actually that's my 17 year old son i've got to um uh, can i yeah can yeah I actually, yeah yeah hold on a second hey mac yeah, I, hey, listen, I'm on uh, I'm on an internet um, interview. Okay, I was just talking about you, actually, um, but I have to get off. Okay, pardon me. Yeah, you you can take the car if you want for a little bit. <laughs> okay, all right, bye.
Okay. All right. Yeah, speak of, speak of the devil. He's got the car now, so <laughs> he's, he's free to go. <laughs> Good. So, you know, I, I think you see what I'm saying. I'm looking yeah. for... And, and, and the thing so the is, debate is for the ceiling. Is there a natural right. ceiling or not? I think it looks at this point... You believe uh, there is. I, I think it's, it, it's obvious that there is, and I think the vast majority of... Uh, of real experts in um, senescence, not people like Aubrey de Grey, who's I think a computer scientist who suddenly became obsessed with his own mortality. Uh, I, you know, I don't count him as a genuine expert. The genuine experts see this ceiling and they think it has to do with, uh, with these uh, genetic processes, some of which can be explained even by uh, evolutionary theory. You know, but natural selection just didn't design us to live that long beyond our um, reproductive years and so our bodies start breaking down in all sorts of ways now i don't rule i don't think there's anything mystical about this i don't rule out the possibility that there could be some kind of genetic intervention maybe even a pharmaceutical intervention that um, has a dramatic impact on uh, longevity and slows down senescence and those sorts of things but i don't see anything happening right now that leads me to believe that that it's going to happen anytime soon. Well, you, you said that you don't believe that Aubrey de Grey is the expert, but let me see what you think about his argument about replacing the parts or his so-called old car argument or old plane argument. And the argument goes like this. You know, you can have a car which was built to last 10 or 20 years, say a Ford Model T or something like that, right? And provided that you have good maintenance and you replace all the parts that break, you can drive that car forever. Mm -hmm. Because we now know how a car runs, we know all the parts, we know how to fix them, and we know how to replace them. So why would that not hold true for us as humans? I mean, just yesterday I was reading an argument about the first Italian boy, I think he was 15 years old, who has a, an artificial heart implant. And in his particular case, he had a very specific muscular degeneration on one of the valves, I think. Um, that's going to be a permanent implant. So it's not going to be taken out ever, right? Right. So if we're able to replace a, a kidney or a liver or, um, you know, implant an artificial heart in somebody at the age of 15 when their heart is not working properly, why wouldn't be able to do so at 130 if, say, arguably 130 is the ceiling that you've mentioned? Mm -hmm. Why, and if, say, you have a 130-year-old woman in France whose heart goes out, why wouldn't be, in theory, able to provide her with an artificial heart and therefore resolve her heart issue and therefore provide her with extra uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years of life? Well, listen, I, you know, I, I, I love thought experiments, uh, but they don't really, um, ultimately, they don't impress me as arguments that help us uh, figure out what's going to happen in the near future. So when I hear this, this sort of thought experiment, my reaction would be, why aren't billionaires doing this right now? You know, if, if you can really, you know, if Aubrey de Grey's um, replacement theory of uh, to, to forestall aging is correct. I would think 
and maybe I bet they're billionaires already out there trying to do this sort of thing. Um, that they're you know they're getting spare parts from people. They're bar- buying uh, organs. Um, and they are. We do have medical tourists and stuff. People go to places like India sure. and China, even and so on, to get organ replacements. Okay. Now, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, as far as I know, I haven't heard any stories about how that has lifted the medical seal. Maybe it's it's just too early yet. But um, then there's also the obvious problem of um, brain transplants. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that that's in the cards yet. And by the time you're 100, even an old Madame Camont, apparently she was uh, you know, a pretty lively old lady. Most people, by the time they get to 100 years old, their brains aren't working that well. A lot of them have Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's, which are yeah. also diseases of aging. So, um, you know, my attitude is I don't rule it out, but show me. You know, do it instead of just creating these sort of, well, well, imagine if this happens and that happens. That doesn't really ultimately impress me that much. I, I, I want to see uh, signs that it's happening right now or that the first steps are being taken. And I and I really don't see that happening. Conventional heart and liver transplants and those sort, sorts of things. I don't see any signs that those are lifting the ceiling. Um, but but aren't those things conventional today by our modern day contemporary measure? I mean, by 20 years or 30 years ago, they were not contemporary. They were not conventional at all. And in other, and, and so in another 30 years, what is not conventional now would be conventional in three decades from now. Well, that's, Isn't that the whole point of, of, of progressing, of progress of science or, or, or do you not accept that? I mean, and also with the vision point, like, I, I have a very healthy um, skepticism, scientific skepticism in me, I believe. And actually, we recently argued with a friend of mine about the difference between religions, religion and science. And my argument was that in religion, it all starts with faith. In science, it, it starts with doubt, I think, or with a right. healthy skepticism. But you also need to have the vision. I mean, if you were in the 1950s and you tell somebody, show me how we get to the moon, or if you were in uh, 1900 and you tell the Wright brothers, show me how you fly. Well, two years down the road, they would have shown you, but not at 1900, you know. So where's my vision? Okay, I'll tell you what my vision is now. I've gone from being a uh, uh, psychedelic singularity believer to, uh, to being um, a pacifist who actually thinks that it's possible that war and militarism around the world will end. So that's something I've been writing a lot about lately. Uh, I think that makes me um, uh, as optimistic as anybody, more optimistic than most people, because I've actually been surveying people for a few years now, and the vast majority of people uh, I survey, about 90%, say that war is a permanent part of the human condition, mm-hmm. that it's, uh, it's naive, sentimental, romantic to talk about a world without war uh, but but yeah but I that's something that I fervently believe in and I and part of and, and what I've what so what I've, do you say when somebody tells you the same as you say show me show me the piece I mean any point in the world I mean interestingly enough before I got into the singularity my area was armed conflict that's what I did my MA on and that's how oh, I got into the singularity right so my my whole undergrad and graduate degree was in armed conflict and war war theory ethics in war just war theory etc and that's actually the the way I got involved in the singularity was by 
writing a research paper on artificial intelligence at the time of war, which I ended up calling Hacking Destiny, Critical Security at the Intersection of Machine and Human Intelligence. And I was looking at the conflicts of Iraq uh, and Afghanistan in the context of the first time when increasingly automated machines start taking increasingly automated decisions about whether humans would live or die. Right. Well, you know, in, again, in the early 80s, I was, one of my beats was arms control and uh, mm -hmm. military technologies, um, electronic intelligence and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I love that stuff. Just to, to give you a very quick version of my uh, argument for optimism about war, first of all, um, one of the things I have to do is disabuse people of the notion that war is something that goes back millions of years in human prehistory to the common ancestor we have with chimpanzees. A lot of people have read about that. It comes from uh, people like uh, the Harvard anthropologist Richard Wrangham. It's just false. And I've written about that at Scientific American, and I hope people will check out things I've written in where I try to uh, dismantle the arguments for primordial uh, warfare. War really only emerged about 10 or 12,000 years ago in human prehistory. Then, of course, it became uh, all too widespread. Uh, I see war as a cultural innovation, as a meme that happens to be extremely effect, uh, infectious and mutates very rapidly and can, can adapt itself to almost any culture. Uh, but one thing that makes me optimistic right now is that we happen to be in a period when war is... Um, uh, at a, in a lull. So the world, believe it or not, right now is uh, relatively uh, nonviolent, uh, unwarlike compared certainly to any time in the, the uh, 20th century. Uh, so actual combat casualties are, have fallen below 50,000 um, a year over the last, on average, over the last 10 years. There are other people who die of uh, refugees die of uh, famine and disease that is caused by war, but actual shootings, um, it's a very small number, especially compared to homicides, which are well over a million uh, globally. I think that people are just getting sick of war. And here's the naive part of me. I, I think <laughs> that people are beginning to realize that war is really is stupid. It's stupid and wasteful. It's a primitive, immature behavior. And, um, and that uh, world leaders are beginning to recognize that. I think the United States is certainly part of the problem now, but it can also be part of the solution in getting us past war. The United States military budget is about as much as the rest of the world combined now. So that shows the power we have to be leaders in taking the world uh, beyond war and militarism. Uh, but, you know, I realize I've got an uphill battle trying to convince people of that. And, and especially against your own, I think, arguments that you level against the singularity. I mean, arguments like show me or because, I mean, you can say at any point in time, anywhere in the world, even as we speak right now, there are crimes against humanity and war crimes being committed. There's right. people being killed in armed conflict as we speak all over the place. And chances are next year and the following year, they probably would still be. But there are fewer there are fewer. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if there was the same kind of dramatic progress in treating cancer that there has been in uh, terms of war casualties dropping 
over the last half century, since particularly since the end of World War II, I would be a lot more um, agreeable to the idea of immortality than I am right now. I mean, this is an empirical trend. Uh, the, de the decrease. In well, there are some an anomalies in that empirical trend. I think the the conflict in Congo was often referred to as the the African Great War, and supposedly. Numbers are very hard to be accurate in Africa, but I've heard estimates from two to seven million people uh, killed or, or, or dead. Now, it's very hard, again, to differentiate what percentage were actually killed and what percentage died from, like, famine and all kinds of other accompanying effects of, of war. But, I mean, we're talking still in the millions of people. And that's think, only in the last 10, de 10 years or so, I think. I think what we're seeing now is um, there's a uh, political scientist at Ohio State named John Mueller who's been writing about the possible uh, about the decline of war and the possible end of war for uh, more than 20 years now, and he says that now we're dealing with what he calls the remnants of war. We're dealing with with uh, civil wars in areas where where governments have failed. That would be certainly true of uh, the Congo. You're dealing with rogue states like uh, North Korea, like uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein. You're dealing with um, civil wars like the one in Sri Lanka, which, uh, which recently ended. But uh, I see it as progress that we're dealing with those sorts of conflicts, which are still terrible, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed, but they, they don't compare to World War II or World War I or even with the potential for destruction that you could have had if there was a war between the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Another reason I'm optimistic is because the Cold War ended. I mean, who would have thought in 1985? How old are you? I'm 34. You're 34. so. And so, I grew up in Eastern Europe in Bulgaria, so I know a lot about the Cold War. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, here you are. You're in the United States. Um, you're, or you're in Canada. I'm right? in Canada, yes. Yeah, so... Um, you know that you wouldn't have been able to leave uh, Bulgaria probably thirty Absolutely. thirty years ago. Yeah, and and the collapse of the Soviet Union happened with virtually no violence at all. Who could possibly have foreseen that? Uh, so those sorts of things. The end of apartheid in South Africa also happened uh, relatively nonviolently. So I'm you know I'm grasping at straws wherever I can. And trying to point those out to people to show that um, that there is reason to hope, and that you, you know we can have faith in human intelligence and decency. Well, I, I absolutely wish you good luck with that argument, and I absolutely hope you, you you're right on that one. But but I'm going to try and bring back our discussion and connect it a little bit more to the singularity again. Mm -hmm. Still not far away from from war, though, at least for the, for the next couple of minutes, by asking you about the participation of artificial intelligence or armed machines in war nowadays. I mean, you, you said that, you know, in the 80s, DARPA, etc., was trying to develop those machines. Well, today they actually have them deployed into the thousands in every kind of battlefield. And the, the, the progress and the production and the scaling of those is ramping up all the time, right? And there's even a, a certain kind of policy uh, papers by Congress with certain kind of targets of, you know, automating, say, 50% of 
such and such forces by such and such date, etc., etc. And there are people being killed today by reapers and by raptors and by the Mars and swords robots and all kinds of other robots. So is that a worrying concern for you that artificial intelligence, however narrow it may be in this point and stupid artificial intelligence it may be at this point, has the ability to kill people? Yes, uh, it, it's, it worries me a lot. I, I, had, I, I, um, I bring lecturers to my school uh, several times a semester and uh, about a year ago I brought Peter Singer to mm -hmm. uh, Stephen. So Peter Singer is a security analyst who wrote a book called Wired for War, I think is the name. It's basically just what you're talking about. It's the increasing use of, uh, of robots and artificial intelligence in warfare, and it's extremely worrisome. And I, it's created the impression among some people in the Pentagon and elsewhere that we can fight wars without having any casualties on our side. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, it, you go back through the history of military technologies um, and of course, there's always this effort to find uh, the super weapon that will uh, completely defeat the other side and give you overwhelming superiority. Obviously, we're not winning the war in Afghanistan, even though we have these super machines. Um, Just like we had relative super machines in Vietnam. Exactly. And it didn't have and supercomputer power and all that. It's very have. worrisome to me, I, and what's scary also, um, just as a matter of historical fact, the inventor of the Gatling gun, Gatling, thought yeah. that machine guns were so devastating that it would bring an end to war, uh, and then it just meant that the carnage was even greater in World War I. Uh, the, yeah. the, the people who created more and more nuclear weapons thought that that would bring an end to war. It's just, I, I feel that we're, we're very fortunate that we haven't had a nuclear war so far. So I certainly don't think that technology, technology is a wild card, I got to admit, when it comes to thinking about the end of war. Uh, and it, it provides this terrible temptation, especially for, for an industrialized nation like the United States, that it can finally vanquish its enemies uh, just through um, machines. Uh, but I hope we're mature enough to realize, and, and you know, the evidence is already there, that that's not going to work. It's not going to work in the sense of winning the war for our purposes, but it may work in the sense of providing the funding and the research and the testing ground for developing smarter and smarter and smarter machines that right. have the capability and the sort of design to kill people. Nick, let me just say, I, I mean, I, I don't know how many people are going to watch this um, video, but, I, but those who are watching, some of them might be uh, computer scientists and software designers and so forth, and who might be working for the military or thinking about working for the military. And I just hope they, they really ponder the ethics of doing that. Some uh, of them are, and they are pondering the ethics. I actually talked to another to a person like that a couple of days ago. Well, they, you know, they should be uh, and ask themselves whether they are really making the world safer or even the United States safer by by, by working on those sorts of devices, because I don't think they are. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure they are in, in so many levels, too, but, but one of the arguments, which is a strong argument in my mind, is the argument that, look, uh, robots have the potential 
to be more ethical soldiers than humans. I mean, imagine a, an 18 year old kid uh, coming right out of high school and being shipped over to whether it's Vietnam, Iraq or Afghanistan, it doesn't matter, right? And no matter what kind of equipment you provide to that kid, I mean, I was 18 when I was conscripted in Bulgarian army, so I know how those, those that's why I say kid, because I was a kid at 18, yes. I think. And, and uh, no matter what kind of material support you provide, they're still going to get tired, thirsty, stressed out, homesick, uh, etc. And angry, angry, uh, upset. Yeah, they're going to vengeful. get post-traumatic stress disorder when you see your friend being killed next to you, etc. So the argument goes that a robot never gets sick, never gets tired, never gets vengeful, can always act under just law rules and can always dis discriminate between legitimate and illegitimate targets, such as women and children, for example, etc., etc. So... If you, the argument goes that if we get it right, those machines would actually be better, more reliable, and cheaper, uh, both in terms of uh, blood and money, uh, soldiers than what we have right now. Right, and I, easier I, to replace. I've, I've I've heard those arguments in principle. I think they make sense. But remember, those machines will still be uh, ruled by human commanders. And those commanders can dial the ethics of the machines up or down. And uh, when the battle uh, gets really intense and uh, the, um, the, the war is in the balance, then I figure those, those uh, commanders will dial the ethics down of the machines just the way they dial the ethics down of uh, human soldiers, and you will still have atrocities. I really don't see um, machines carrying out some kind of true just war in the future. I think that's that's a pipe dream. I think it will just let people rationalize war in the future, just as they've always rationalized uh, war in the past. So I hope people don't, don't, um, don't fool themselves into thinking that that will happen. Let me just make one more point. We're talking mm -hmm. about machines and artificial intelligence. Yeah. This is also, there's also another, um, research area related to the singularity, a lot of the work being done on what I call neural coding, which is trying to understand how yeah. the brain works. If you think of the brain as a kind of computer, it's trying to understand the, uh, the machine code of the brain. A lot of that work is being supported by the Pentagon. By DARPA too. I find that very worrisome. I know that there are people in, in, in uh, DARPA who are interested in creating uh, super soldiers, bionic soldiers, who are cognitively enhanced by having brain implants and so forth. Again, I think that is a very, very bad idea. It's just going to continue the arms race, uh, taken in, in directions that are very unpredictable and will lead to more instability. So again, I hope people out there who might be working on those sorts of things think very long and hard before they get involved in that sort of stuff. Well, whether it's a good or a bad idea, I'm going to push that issue aside for the moment. But the, the point of the matter is that those technologies are being worked on. They're being funded, they're being researched, and they're being tested. So if I'm to take a variant of Nick Bostrom's argument, the research in the field of artificial intelligence, for good or for bad, whether for military purposes or for civilian purposes, is unlikely to be halted. It's 
most likely going to continue and most likely the machines are going to be smarter and smarter and better and better as they come out to the production line. So isn't that all add up to a singularity in the end then? <laughs> if, you, if you accept with me those steps and those concerns, which are all legitimate concerns, but whether for good or for bad, doesn't that all add up to a singularity, whether it's going to be the end of us or not? Again, it depends what you mean by the singularity. I think crazy shit's going to happen in the future. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly think uh, that's the case, but it might be really good stuff. It, may, it might be things like the end of the Soviet Union, which nobody saw coming. Um, I mean, Google is amazing. I dig Google. I, I love Google. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these technologies I find fascinating. I do think that there's some interesting stuff happening in artificial intelligence uh, that is plugged into uh, the Internet. Uh, so the Internet can provide this kind of database for common sense reasoning uh, that is extraordinary, that wasn't possible in artificial intelligence research just 20 years ago. So that kind of stuff I see is very exciting. I think uh, even quantum computer research is is pretty cool, mm -hmm. and that could go in, in all sorts of interesting directions. I still think that we're going to be stuck with the, the, the essentials of the human condition, which means that we are mortal creatures, we get lonely sometimes, we're all searching for love and for meaning in our lives in terms of uh, those sorts of things uh, being changed in some radical way um, because we, you know, we become cyborgs or live in cyberspace. Um, I just don't see it happening. So, but, but, but isn't that the spiritual John Horgan rather than the scientist? I mean, we have all the evidence here or what I think is the evidence of, of things progressing along. And then you say, I, don't, I just don't see it happening. I mean, if, if you look at it scientifically, you have to say, well, we have A, B, C, and D, and yes, maybe Z, maybe <laughs> Z. But you're saying, yes, I accept A, B, C, and D, but I don't see Z. Well, I know, Nick, I don't know. I, I think you seem to be a true believer, and I've given you my best shot at trying to convince you, <laughs> uh, or trying to not convince you, but to show you where my skepticism comes from. I feel like it's based not on some kind of mystical, spiritual outlook, but on a, um, uh, a, a pretty hard-headed assessment of where science and technology are right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you might be right. There might be some some crazy machine that's running around the halls of Google right now that they're going <laughs> to let out. And it's and it's you know, it's it's the it's the how that everybody has been waiting for all these years. But, um, you know, I want to see it before I believe it. OK, let me just zoom back a little bit, because we, we've been discussing the term and, and there's a, a lot of disagreement about the definition of singularity. So let me ask you, John, how do you define the singularity in your own view? What is the singularity? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I'm, so the skeptic in me seizes on certain essential elements. The one element that I think is, is very concrete and that I like to focus on is the element of um, immortality. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and the thing is that Immortality can be realized in lots of different ways. Obviously, you can have immortality of our flesh and blood cells by, let's say, you know, some genetic engineering. You can have immortality of ourselves if we're digitized and, 
and uh, and embodied in computers and that sort of thing, or we or maybe we have all our body parts replaced, as you were you were saying. Uh, so that's one part of it. Uh, but then there is the the superintelligence part, and that again can can be something that involves, let's say, brain plants, brain implants in um, in people who are who are like you and me, or it can be pure robots, pure metal and silicon uh, devices that become uh, super intelligent and maybe have a, a mind completely different from our our minds. Um, uh, or a genetically engineered human. So there are all sorts of different versions of that, but the idea is not just uh, advances, tweaks in our intelligence in the same way that we've had slight advances in uh, life expectancy, but, you know, like tenfold intelligence increases where you really have a, a completely new life form with extraordinary capacities. And maybe you get this positive feedback effect going where that super intelligent creature can create even more intelligent offspring. Uh, so those two elements, the superintelligence and especially positive feedback, superintelligence and immortality are the ones that I'm, that I think are, are um, the, the pillars of the singularity. And those are the two elements that I'm most skeptical of. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you believe, you're convinced that the human condition is fundamentally inescapable. I mean, we... As far as I can tell now, I, I again, it's not... I know you, you think you want... <laughs> you think that I've, I've got some sort of spiritual resistance to this. It's, it's, it's science. And it's looking at what science and medicine are doing right now. Mm. I, if, if it is really possible for me to live to be 500 years old, I will be all over that. Uh, you know, I'll be <laughs> to sign up. I'm not going to be denouncing it. It's a horrible thing. There are people who have ethical objections to the singularity. My ethical objections come from people talking about these things as imminent when there's really no evidence for that. But in terms of whether I think it would be, a, you know, a groovy thing or not to have an IQ of 700 and to be able to live to 500 and have the body of a 25 year old, I, I think that's, that's uh, just fine. I, you know, and I, and if it, if it can happen, I think it will happen. There's no stopping it because people with money will pay for it, but it's not going to happen. Not in this century. <laughs> Very well, John. Uh, let me ask you my last two questions. Uh, the first one would be if there's one thing, one message that you would like to, get across to our viewers and listeners today at Singularity Weblog, what would you like it to be? Uh, stop thinking about uh, becoming a super intelligent cyborg and start thinking about how to create a world without war. Very nice. Like <laughs> Fantastic. I can't do better than that. That's, that's pretty good, I think. Okay. I like it. And for those of us who are interested to find out more about you, to follow your writings, etc., where could they go and get some more information on you? Sure. I have a personal website. It's just johnhorgan.org. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can also go to the Scientific American website, which is just siam.com. And I have a, uh, a blog there called Crosscheck where I say mean things about 
uh, lots of other people besides believers in the singularity. <laughs> well, on this note, John, I have to say it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I really appreciate you taking your time to be a guest here at uh, Singularity Podcast. And um, I hope that uh, we do that again. It was my pleasure, really, Nick. Thank you, John. Okay.